I've got a 10 year old daughter. And one of the things I'm trying to teach her is, sweetheart, you must work hard, but don't work hard to survive. Work hard to build. There's a big difference. So fundamentally, it was first understanding the psychology of wealth and fixing that. We have to be very careful not to entertain thoughts like money is not important. I'm happy without money. We're just engaging in self-deception. We've really got to understand the science around self-deception and how humans, we tend to do that a lot. Once we've understood the psychology, we've really got to actively find examples of people with money doing good things. What are examples of wealthy people who are doing wonderful things? Are they creating jobs? Are they giving money to charities? Are they contributing to a society or the economy? Are they disrupting or innovating with the financial resources that we have? So we have to stop looking for people who are doing bad things with money, and we have to proactively start looking for examples of people doing wonderful things with money. Because we have to start to create positive associations with wealth. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into your favorite financial and career podcast, The Free Retiree Show. I'm your host, Wealth Manager, Lee Michael Murphy, and alongside my pal, Silicon Valley's favorite interview coach, Sergio Patterson. What is up, everyone? For today's discussion, we're going to be talking about how to develop a powerful mindset when it comes to creating wealth. And to lead us in our discussion today, Serge, I have someone that I found online, I've been a fan of for a while, his name is Ron Mohatra. And he is an international speaker, radio host, and he's the best-selling author of the book, Eight Wealth Habits of Financially Successful People. Now, Ron, he's been featured on CNN, Huffington Post, Money Magazine, and he's got a ton of awards, such as 2018 Award Top 50 Most Influential Man via LinkedIn, July 2022, awarded the Man of the Year by the Power Summit. And he's even got the award in 2022 for Platinum Award Best Owned Media E-Magazine for the Successful Male. So without further ado, Mr. Ron Malhatra, how are you doing this morning? Hey, I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. We're blessed to have you. You are a phenomenal speaker. And Serge and I, we always talk about wealth mindset and the things that hold us back. So Serge, on our podcast before... He kind of fights me on what creates wealth. And Serge, what are some of your limiting beliefs that you think might have held you back in the past on wealth creation? Welcome to the show, Ron. We're happy to have you. I think the wealth is all a mindset, right? There's been moments in my life where I've been scared to invest, where I'm scared to, to give Lee, the, my financial advisor, a couple hundred bucks, but I'll go to a club or I'll go and buy X or whatever. We spend this money on that. But I think there's just something in the back of our minds as humans that it's actually work, it's like working against our own benefit, right? But there's these little habits that I think we can pick up, and I'm sure Ron will share more that can really change everything. As I've gotten older, those little things make the I've been fascinated with psychology for many years. My technical background actually has been in financial services and wealth management, financial planning, funds management, accounting, and private banking. But I've, my deep interest has always been in psychology. Now, psychology permeates everything. Psychology affects everything. It affects our relationships. It affects our health. But in my opinion, uh, it is most pervasive and most prevalent in the area of money and finance. And I think generally there's a perception that financial literacy is an intellectual endeavor. And I don't believe that's true. It is not. It is not purely an intellectual endeavor. You can be incredibly well educated from an intellectual point of view from an academic point of view from a professional point of view 
and still fail financially. You can be numerically orientated. You can actually be in the area of finance. You can have a finance degree. You can be working as a CFO for a large company and still fail in the area of finance. And I have personally witnessed it many times, and I'm not surprised because behavior and psychology and emotions play an incredibly important role when it comes to financial management and wealth creation. And I don't think it gets talked about enough. I don't think it's understood enough. I don't think even financial professionals appreciate how much psychology and behavior and emotions impact the way we perceive wealth and our ability to be able to create wealth for the future. So I'm fascinated by this topic and I've been talking about it for a number of years. And one one of the things I find is that no other topic is more contentious than this topic. In fact, as we speak right now, I have a video on Instagram where I literally have hundreds of people attacking me for me to talk about money. It's really, people are so wounded and scarred when it comes to money because of their childhood conditioning, because of their Mm. perspectives on the wealth disparity, because of the suffering that they've endured as a lack of money, that the moment somebody speaks the truth about money, that wound is immediately exposed and people react with anger. And so I understand it because I've endured it for a number of years and it's really interesting how the moment I talk about money, how it provokes the deepest instinct in human beings and how reactive and how angry they become. So I'm really fascinated about this topic and I've made it my life's mission that I'll continue to talk about this with the intent of empowering people financially, even if it means that temporarily people are going to misunderstand me and they're going to attack me and they're going to hate me. The reality is I am very clear on the message that I'm advocating. And if I'm given the opportunity, if it's platforms similar to yours, I hope that I'm able to back up what I'm saying when I talk about the connection between psychology and wealth creation. Ron, what are some of the common misconceptions that people have around money or some of the damaging ways that they view it? And when people come and uh, come back at you and they say, hey, we don't like that the way you're looking at it, what do you see? What are some of the flaws in the thinking of these people? This is across the world right now. I think culturally, we have been conditioned to dislike wealthy people. We have been conditioned to predominantly see wealth creation greedy and exploitative and arrogant endeavor. Predominantly, we have been conditioned that way. And so what is the problem with that? Well, you can logically desire money. You can logically value money. But if you are at the subconscious level, you're predisposed to perceiving wealth and the pursuit of wealth as an arrogant or as a greedy or as an exploitative endeavor, you will always self-sabotage your own money efforts. Because if you understand psychology, we don't do what we know we should do. We do what we feel and what we believe. And so what happens is if you have an individual and consciously they understand the importance of money and they understand the importance of securing their financial future, but at the deepest unconscious level, they have a belief that wealth, wealthy people are bad people, that you have to engage in some sort of corruption to become wealthy, that the pursuit of wealth makes you a person who is vain and arrogant. What you have now is the conscious desire in direct conflict with the subconscious conditioning. And as we know, the more and more we understand about how subconscious conditioning works, it has an incredible power over your conscious desires. So you can logically say whatever you want. You can work hard towards it, but subconsciously we are conditioned to not be wealthy. 
We're not conditioned to be wealthy. We're conditioned to survive. We are not conditioned to economically thrive. It is not our natural programming, and especially if you've come from a culture where you have witnessed a lot of poverty and you have seen potentially a lot of corruption in, in, in a lot of South American countries, in a lot of African countries, in a lot of Asian countries. A lot of people have directly witnessed the corruption and the exploitation of the poor by the wealthy. And so they formed a subconscious connection that, hey, that's what wealthy people do. And so it's almost like they're allergic. Psychologically, they're allergic to wealth creation. The only reason they work hard is because they need money to survive. But there is a big difference in making money to survive versus having enough to thrive. And majority of them are not even aiming for that because it makes them feel dirty about themselves. At the deepest level, they feel bad that they are even valuing wealth creation. So people like me, for example, who are extremely passionate about wealth creation, if I am a man, a young, not, I'm not a young man anymore, but I've been doing this since I was quite young in my 20s. If I'm in a suit and I'm talking about wealth, I am probably one of the most hated people in the world just by because of what I represent. And that hatred is not happening at a conscious level. It's happening at an unconscious level. It's how they perceive me. It's not who I am. It's how they perceive me. Now, you have to be very strong. When you're an advocate of financial literacy, you have to be incredibly strong. And you have to be incredibly convicted about this stuff because the amount of backlash you're going to get from people, the same people who you're trying to empower, it's incredibly high. So I've obviously developed a bit of a thick skin now. And any opportunity I get, I ask people to let me, hey, give me an opportunity to back what I'm saying, back up what I'm saying. But people are not interested. They don't want an explanation. Their minds are made up. Right. And so they're operating from that instinct. And it's very hard to change those deeply conditioned behaviors. It takes a long time. But look, I'm on that mission. So I'm going to continue to do what I have to do. But I'm also very aware of the fact that I'm triggering people. It's not my intent, but it's just a byproduct of what's going to happen is because I'm talking about an area which where people have an incredible amount of deep scars. Curious, like you. You've been doing this for years. I love the way you framed around conditioning. I have children myself, and I think as parents, we have power. I'm just curious for you, when did it all click for you? At what age? And why did you get on this journey? I grew up in India. I'm Indian by background, born in India. My parents are very good people, and they are educated people. And they worked hard. They're God-loving people. And yet, I saw them struggle financially. And not just them, I saw pretty much everybody around them, immediate family members. I saw everybody struggle financially. The majority of people in my family, I saw them as very good people, kind people, honest people, God-loving people, and educated people. But they were always struggling financially. There was always financial problems. So as a child, even though I couldn't articulate this, I was subconsciously starting to connect the fact that education and being a kind-hearted person is simply not enough. And the other thing I started to realize, and I don't know why I realized this, that the more money you have, the more choices you have. The less money you have, the less choices you have. So for me, because of my independent orientation, I always wanted to have a lot of choices in life. And so I decided that if I didn't have wealth, I'm not going to have choices. I wanted to be able to choose how I look, what I spend money on, what I eat, where I live, where I spend my, 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 my kids to school, what I do with my time. So for me, the choices were very important. It wasn't so much about the fact that I wanted to have money so that I could exert status over others. It was more the fact that I wanted more choices in life because I saw what happens when you don't have choices. I saw that and I saw the suffering that happens. 
And so I realized that in order for me to have choices, I must gain financial resources. And for me to gain financial resources, I must have financial education. So as I started to look into this, and I, my recent book, Indoctrinated, it confirms this further for two and a half years worth of research. I was convinced that the education system doesn't teach you economic skills. It doesn't teach you financial and business skills, which are incredibly important if you want to become financially successful. It teaches you technical skills, which get you to survival, but it doesn't teach you the financial and business skills, which get you to financial success. And my question was, why is that? Where am I going to learn this from? And it's interesting. I remember the day it actually happened. I went out with my friends. I was in my early 20s and we were out all night and then we came back. We were hungry. We wanted to have breakfast and we went to this cafe in a place uh, in Melbourne called South Yarra and we sat down. It was already morning and we, we ordered some breakfast and there was a newspaper sitting on the table and it said that 3% of the world population controls 60% of the world's assets and it caught my attention. Imagine drinking the night before, having a hangover, but then you see this article. It immediately got my attention. And I remember the moment and I'm thinking, what? And I'm thinking, how is that? I always subconsciously knew that there was a wealth disparity in the world, but I didn't realize how bad it was. So, the, so instead of, but my instinct told me that we can't just blame the wealthy. And my question was, is it possible perhaps that we are doing this to ourselves? The people who don't have financial resources, and at the time I didn't have any financial resources. Is it possible perhaps that we are contributing to this wealth disparity because of the way we perceive money and wealth and the way we behave towards it. Because the first instinct is to blame the wealthy, right? Oh, these bastards, they're taking all this money and they're exploiting us. But my second thought was, hang on, are we somehow contributing to this? Because then it started to dawn on me that my people in my family would say things like, oh, money's not that important. I don't really want to be wealthy. I'm not wealthy, but at least I'm honest, right? Money is the root cause of all evil. Money doesn't make you happy. So I started to realize that there is perhaps in the way we speak to ourselves results in us losing the financial motivation that is required to become wealthy. And then I started to realize when I started to do personal development and psychology, I came across this concept of rationalization. How when we fail at something, it's painful. And instead of admitting that we failed, we instead rationalize a statement by saying, hey, that was never important to me anyway. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to avoid feeling hurt. So then I became really conscious about the fact that I didn't want to use rationalizations. And I had been using rationalizations in the past myself. And I call rationalization a form of self-deception. You're deceiving yourself. You're actually lying to yourself. And, and it's a very hard thing to do because we're traumatized about money problems, right? We have so much trauma around it. So I understand it. I completely get it. I was traumatized about money problems, always being concerned about what's going to happen financially. But I realized that if I'm going to evolve from this point on, I must stop the rationalizations and I must stop the self-deception and own up to the fact that I'm not skilled. I don't have enough value in the marketplace. I don't have the skills that the market values. And quite simply, I don't understand how the money flow works. Okay. And that requires us to get rid of a lot of ego and look at ourselves in the mirror and go, you know what? I don't want to end up like my family. They're good people. I want to be a good person, but I don't want to be deprived of financial capability. And so that's why I'm really passionate about it because then I've gone from, I remember the days I was living in a commission house with five guys. A commission house is a house that is reserved for people that are delinquents, basically. They can't have, they have no financial means. 
And there was a commission house that I used to live in. It was a three-bedroom house, five guys living in it. And I remember that the only thing I could afford was a banana for dinner. So I had one cereal bowl and I had a banana. And I remember that was my thing. In the kitchen, you had this in the pantry. and I had one cereal bowl and then I would get three or four bananas. And that was meant to last me for three or four days. So that's where I've been. So for me, I understand now being that poor and then now having the financial means to be able to do whatever the hell I want. I'm never going back to poverty again. I don't care how much people attach honor to poverty. I just think it's a twisted form of self-rationalization. And I think it's very harmful and hurtful to the individuals that are actually doing it. Now, one of the other things that I get is people say, well, the system is rigged. Yes, it probably is. It's practically impossible for the vast majority of people to become billionaires unless you're heavily politically connected or you said you build the next tech firm, or you're a talented musician, celebrity, or sports person, it's practically impossible for the average person to become a billionaire. There are only 2,500 billionaires on the entire planet. However, is it possible for an average person like us, people who've come from average backgrounds, to at least become a millionaire or a multimillionaire? And the answer is yes. It is difficult, but it is very much possible. And so for me, it was like, hey, I don't know the path to becoming a billionaire, but listen, you owe it to yourself to at least become a millionaire or a multimillionaire. And we'll talk about what the definition of a millionaire is, just so that you never have to stress about life and you can have a dignified existence and you don't have to depend on governments and you don't have to put financial stress on your family. But I'm surprised that even that message was not received well. It's weird. What I'm hearing from you is choices. It's not about the money you have in the bank, but it's about the freedom it gives you. Doing this to have the nicest car. That's what I'm hearing. Actually, the other thing is, you know, Lee, the other thing is, I realized so much about myself. I learned so much about myself. I realized, for example, I love art and I love antiques and I love literature and I love history. But I didn't know any of these things about myself when I was in survival stage because you don't have the time to explore who you are. Because you don't have the money, because you're so concerned about paying bills. It's only when I became financially secure, I started to realize and learn a lot about myself. Because you see, when you're at financial survival, your ability to go into self-actualization is very limited simply because you don't have the time and you don't have the means. So I really believe that the acquisition of financial wealth made me a better person because I started to have the time for my health, for my mental well-being, for my self-development, for my spiritual development to explore my interests. I couldn't have done any of that if I'm at survival stage. So I feel that my evolution as a human being accelerated after I came into financial means. And now I compare myself to the person I used to be. And I think the person that I used to be was extremely selfish and fearful and had a scarcity-based disposition. So I feel like I was running on instinct back then. Whereas now I'm able to think things through and I'm not operating from a place of fear because that scarcity is gone. Hmm. So I really feel that coming into financial means actually has a really positive impact on our well-being and our evolution as well. But this hardly ever gets talked about. So that's why I'm extremely passionate about this. And I have to, I'm not saying that we have to become super wealthy and we have to have mansions and Ferraris, although you will find that there are some incredible things in life that you can enjoy if you have money. Like, I love everything that God has made, but I love everything that man has made as well. I want to enjoy a sports car or a prestige car or a nice watch because for me, it's a way to appreciate what humans are creating, but I can't afford it if I'm not wealthy. So a lot of even human experiences are enhanced through the acquisition of financial wealth 
And people say to me, a car is a car. And I go, no, you don't know until you've actually sat in a Porsche 911 and driven down. You, if you've gone through, you don't actually know what you're talking about. But as I said to you, people are wounded. So they automatically, when they see you in a sports car, they see you in a prestige car, they see you wearing a Rolex, they automatically make the assumption that you're a person who is insecure. You need these things to exert your superiority over others. Rather than seeing you as somebody who just want, appreciates the human experience and wants to maximize the human experience, they automatically see the negative side of this. Okay, so there is a little bit of obviously when you become wealthier, you're going to spend a bit of money on materialism. And I don't see anything wrong with it. As long as you're not using that materialism to exert status over others. And that's the key thing for me. So Ron, one thing that I notice a lot from people, acquaintances, people that I work with, or for, the justification of maybe spending money on things that aren't important. And it keeps them at a certain wealth level. Maybe it might hold them back. But time and time again, they justify it. They say, well, I deserve nice things. I deserve that trip with my family. You hear that all the time. But financially, they stay the same because of that mindset. Now, one thing I love about everything that I know about you is you are great with the psychology of what goes behind those decisions. Can you give us a little bit on what's going on with those people? We will always make time and we will always make money and we'll always be organized in areas that align with our primary values. Art is important to me. I love art. And I would have never developed an appreciation for art or antiques if I didn't have the money. I didn't realize how much I love this. And some people might look at that and go, you're wasting money. That's because they don't value it, but they value something else. So for us, what happens is having financial means allows us to be able to live by our primary values. But we can't even explore our primary values. We don't even discover them when we don't have money because we're so busy in the survival mode. And that's why a big part of self-actualization can only happen when you're not concerned about money anymore. Now, I'm not saying that people should go and spend money on material items immediately. What I first thing I do is this. And I'll just give you an example of what happens with me. We have the revenue, profits coming in, income coming in. The first portion of that income goes into investments. So my plan is to get to a certain net worth by a certain time frame. And so the first allocation of the money that I earn goes into the future. Then it goes into the living expenses. And then whatever's left, I spend it on lifestyle. If anything's left after living expenses and investment expenses, then I spend it on lifestyle. I'm not advocating that people should go and make money so that they can spend it on lifestyle first. No, the first thing you've got to do is make provisions for your future. Why? Well, let's talk about longevity trends. Because of medical advances, People are living a lot longer. You know, I do a lot of work in India, and I was surprised about this. 100 years ago, the average life expectancy of an Indian was 25 because of famines and because of disease and because of wars, right? 25. 100 years later, it is now 70. That's the average. And we know, like, I've got people in my distant family who are living well into their 90s. Now, here's the problem, and this is what people are not realizing. We are not guaranteed to be able to work past 55 or 60 because of a number of reasons. You may have an illness, mobility problems. You may have a sick spouse. You may have aging parents. You may be made redundant. So there are a number of reasons where you are not guaranteed to have an active source of income after 55 or 60. Even if you want to work, you may not be able to. Okay. We know the trends are pretty clear. If you get kicked out of your job around that time, it's very hard to get back into work at the same income level. We also know that the incidence and the probability of illness and disease 
and disability and mobility problems starts to increase after 55 for most people. So we're not guaranteed to be able to make an active income after 55. And we've got to be aware of that possibility. Now, this is the depressing fact here. And this is why it is so important to create urgency around wealth creations. Imagine a situation where you work till 60 and you're hoping that you'll be able to work for the rest of your life, but you can't. Because just so you know, I've looked at the statistics in Australia, which is a first world developed country. The average retirement age in this country is 58. Not because people want to retire, because they're forced into retirement because of all these issues that I've just mentioned before. Imagine you will retire at 58 and you're going to live to 90. You have, you have 30, to, 30 to 40 years where you need to provide for yourself and your family and the income has stopped. Can you imagine the devastating consequences of that on families? And what are the devastating consequences? Let me give you some real case studies. I had a lady in my office and she was crying. And I said, why are you crying? She said, I'm going to Thailand now. And I said, what for? And she said, well, to euthanize myself. And I said, what's the reason? What, what, what? I was shocked, obviously. And after giving myself a minute, I said, what's the reason? She said, well, I'm retiring now. I've been a nurse for all these years. I can't do the job that I've been, I was supposed to do. I've been forced into retirement. I've only got $66,000 in my retirement savings. That's going to last me a year or two years. She said, now, I want to be close to my daughter and my granddaughter, but the way they live, I can't afford to rent there. So the only place I can afford to rent is an hour, 20 minutes from where they are. Now, this problem didn't just creep up on her. This is a problem that I can, and I can assure you, as much as I empathize with this lady, of course I do. But at the back of my mind, I can't help but think, you've been working for 35 or 40 years. Did nobody tell you? But did you not think that you had to make provisions for your future? You see what I'm saying? So it, you can empathize with people, and I absolutely do. But a part of me also thinks, why? did we not seek out this information? Why did we put ourselves in this predicament? It's not like it just happened like that. This is something that's been going on for 30 or 40 years. Nobody has yeah. sat down yeah. with you, but you didn't probably seek out the information either. You never sat down with somebody and said, hey, I want to make sure that when I retire, I have enough money. So when we talk about wealth, and let me just define the word wealth. Wealth is not about having lifestyle. It's not about mansions and Ferraris. Wealth is the an individual's ability to be able to fund their living and lifestyle expenses without needing to work. And at some point, all of us want to stop working. And when the vast majority stop working, they're not going to have enough, which will create further dependence on the government, resulting in further deficit at the government level, or it will result in dependence on families putting additional financial strain on them. That's the problem we're trying to fix. We have to address, and you have to prevent the problem. You can't fix it. That's the biggest issue. One of the things we have to understand is in business, we can fix issues. When it comes to money and wealth, it's best to avoid issues. The risk management approach is very different when you're running a business versus when you're investing and creating wealth. It's a preventative approach. There comes a time and people might say, make themselves feel good. People might say it's never too late. Well, I'm sorry, but in the world of money and wealth, it is the time when it's too late. And people say that all the time to me. Oh, well, it's never too late to start. And I'm like, in the back of my mind, eh, kind of <laughs> Do you think it, it goes back, Ron, to, you were talking about education and how the lack of financial education from a young age. I was in middle school, high school, college, nothing about finances. Some of my parents maybe have a few conversations, but 
at least in the States, I don't know how it is in Australia. I think it goes back to what you were talking about earlier. When you say prevent, if we educated our youth from a young age, wouldn't that set them up for success down the road? Absolutely. Generation after generation. And isn't it preposterous that why do we go to school? We go to school so we can go to university. Why do we go to university so we can work? Why do we work so we can have money? But nobody has money. So what's the system? What are we doing exactly? Why don't we just teach people how to make money? And here's the thing. We have to understand this. There are three different skill sets when it comes to money. There's a skill set of making money. The vast majority of people after the Industrial Revolution and the Information Age know how to make money. But there is a second and third skill set, which is incredibly important for wealth creation, keeping money and growing money. It's very probable that you know how to make money, but you don't know how to keep it and you don't know how to grow it, which means that it doesn't really matter. Your lifestyle is only reasonable while you've got an active income. But at some point that everything is going to stop because you did not learn the skill of keeping money and growing money. That's a separate skill set, by the way. So what schools and universities do is they equip us to make money. And by the way, not a lot, just enough for survival, but they don't give us the skill set of keeping it and growing it. And the question is, why don't they? That's the question, right? It's a million dollar question. Is it perhaps, is it possible perhaps that schools and universities, they have been given a mandate and a curated curriculum? I'm just asking the question where, hey, let's create a factory of workers who will make the government and the corporations and the tax office rich, but they will never create enough to be able to look after their own families. Is it perhaps, I'm just asking the question, is it perhaps in the interest of governments to produce a welfare state, to create dependence on governments? And then the problem is further exacerbated with spiritual gurus coming out and then making the whole concept of denying money kind of honorable. So we have attached this twisted honor to being poor and this, we see wealthy people or people who are financially motivated as bad people, but financially irresponsible people are good people. And there was an interesting article in Forbes, and the article was, America's favorite, guy, America's favorite villain has always been the rich guy. Now, it's not just in Hollywood that you see this. If you go and watch 10 movies and you see who's the, typically the wealthy person, very rarely will you see the wealthy person being the good person. But even in Bollywood, which is a bigger film industry than Hollywood, it's the same thing. Movie after movie will show you that the good guy is financially irresponsible and the bad guy is financially motivated. This problem is so deeply entrenched in the global culture. And so what's the consequence of that? Let's talk about the consequences here. We're a wealthy country here. You guys are considered a wealthy country. So in the United States, 50 million people under the poverty line. Now, how does that happen? In Australia, 70%, 72% of people will need social security. Why? Why would they need social security? Isn't 30 or 40 years of work sufficient for you to provide for yourself now and make provisions for your future? Why would it not be sufficient? And this is where the problem of financial illiteracy comes in. But here's the biggest issue. You know why people don't embrace financial literacy? Because financial literacy courses are everywhere now. People like Lee, yourself, me, we are there to support people, but people don't want it because logically they want money, but subconsciously they're conditioned to fail financially. So they will always act as per their subconscious conditioning, not as per their conscious desires. And that's why psychology is incredibly pervasive in this area. And we have to understand the impact of psychology on people's behaviors and decision making because we don't, we are emotional and irrational as human beings. We are not as logical as we think as we are. We are. 
And that's why I've had clients who are CFOs. CFO is one of the highest designations you can get. You're an expert on corporate finance and yet they're failing financially. Right? Because you're just, you have developed your logical faculties, but at the emotional level, at the belief level, at the values level, at the habits level, at the self-image level, you're poor. You've got to fix that problem. Not this problem of acquiring financial competency because you can you have people that you can delegate that to. You've got financial advisors, financial planners, wealth managers, investment experts you can delegate that to, but you've got to fix this here. What else do people need to do to overcome the psychology of financial literacy? You talked about fixing what's inside. What are the other things, like the top three things that people need to do to overcome that? Well, for me, I look, at, I look back at how I acquired financial competency, but more importantly, I acquired financial competency for the acquisition of financial resources so I can have choices. So fundamentally, it was first understanding the psychology of wealth and fixing that. We have to be very careful not to entertain thoughts like money is not important, I'm happy without money. We're just engaging in self-deception. We've really got to understand the science around self-deception and how humans, we tend to do that a lot. Once we've understood the psychology, we've really got to actively find examples of people with money doing good things. Right now, what happens is our reticular activation zone will seek out people with money who are doing bad things because that's our belief system. So the reticular activation system will show us more of what we already believe. So we have to go, well, what are there examples of wealthy people who are doing wonderful things? Are they creating jobs? Are they, creating, are they giving money to charities? Are they contributing to the society or the economy? Are they disrupting or innovating with the financial resources that we have? So we have to stop looking for people who are doing bad things with money. And we have to proactively start looking for examples of people doing wonderful things with money. Because we have to start to create positive associations with wealth. After that, we've got to understand the principles of wealth. Because everything has to be principle-based. For example, one of the principles of wealth is that you're not going to create wealth unless you value it. Second principle, wealth, in order to become wealthy, you have to have long-term orientation. Okay, you have to have long-term orientation. And uh, Dr. Banfield is a Harvard professor. He did a 30-year study into the number one contributor of financial mobility is long-term orientation. So when you're thinking about wealth, you've got to think about the future, not today, tomorrow, next year. You've got to have future orientation. The other thing is you don't need to be financially and numerically orientated. You don't. This is the thing. Actually, making wealth is simple. It's simple from a strategy point of view. It is complex from a psychological point of view. From a strategy point of view, it's very easy. I only invest in real estate, ETFs, which is what gives me exposure in the stock market, and in and businesses. They're the only three vehicles I invest in. I have an emergency fund. I have a risk management plan. So everything that can go wrong. And literally, I get people to do this. I go, take out a piece of paper, and let's talk about all the things that can derail you financially. Interest rates going up, inflation going up, market crashing, you becoming injured, you becoming ill, you becoming sick, somebody suing you. So there are about less than 10 reasons why anyone can get derailed. Now, here's the question. Can you mitigate all of those 10 risks? And the answer is yes. You can get good financial advice, good risk management advice, good legal advice to mitigate all the 10 risks that can derail you. And you know what? There are people who are far more intelligent than me who are failing financially. I'm not that intelligent. It's For me, it's just common sense. It's, you know what? Here are all the things. I want to become wealthy if things go well, but I want to become wealthy if things don't go well. And so for me, I want to assure my financial future by understanding what I want. And so these are some of the principles. The other principle is you've got to know how much wealth you need to create. For example, 
and again, it's very simple maths. You don't need to be a financial wizard at this. If you have $1 million in assets outside your family home, because your family home is a non-income producing asset, if you have $1 million and that $1 million earns 5%, that gives you 50000 in income. You want 100000 in income, you need to have $2 million. You want 150000 in income, you need $3 million. These are very basic numbers as a ballpark. Now, you think about the fact that how is the average person going to pay off their home and accumulate between $1 million to $3 million if they're not even wealth-orientated? It's not going to happen. It's not just going to happen through some miracle. It can only happen through a plan. But why don't people plan? Because subconsciously, they're traumatized around money. So the best thing is denial, right? And that is going to hurt them a lot more. I'd rather hurt them now and them attack me so that they can make provisions for their family in the long term. Where otherwise, what's going to happen is if I don't tell them this stuff, they're probably going to be more hurt in the future. And look, I've dealt with this directly. Right now, I'm in a situation where my parents have run out of money. My in-laws are going to run out of money pretty soon as well. And so imagine I'm raising a child. I also have financial goals. I have business goals. I have debt. And now I have to also think about those two parties as well, right? So that's a lot of stress for somebody like me. Now, lucky, I'm in a stronger position where I can take care of some of that, right? But what would have happened if I couldn't? Can you imagine? I'd be going through anxiety and depression, potentially feeling suicidal, right? Because I'd be going, how the hell am I going to manage this? And I'm lucky that I remained financially motivated over the last 20 plus years. And one thing I'm certain about, you may say not everybody can become wealthy. Well, I think there are only two instances where a person cannot become wealthy. Number one, they have a terminal illness or a disability. Number two, there is a threat to their civil liberties. They're the only two exceptions. Other than that, if you have the internet, you have a library, you can become financially educated, you can acquire a skill set which can make you a high income. And all you've got to do is if you're under the age of 40, you've got to invest at least 12% of your income. If you're over the age of 40, you've got to invest about 15% of your income in good quality, high growth assets for the rest of your life. And then you've just got to manage the risk. And the risk can be managed through a combination of legal contracts and some insurance policies and emergency funds. So none of this is overly complicated. It can take you about three to six months to actually get your head around it. But you've got to have the desire to spend the three to six months to develop that skill. And that's the biggest issue. People don't have the desire. And that's where they're not even making a start. Because the story that they're telling themselves is, I can't do this. I don't want, this is not important for me. I'm a good person. So the stories are getting in the way. The skill set is the easy part. The mindset is the hard part. So Ron, one thing that you mentioned about your three ways of creating wealth, it's exactly what on our show. I feel like we're doing some good stuff here, right, Serge? Because that's pretty much the three ways that we have told our listeners, that's how you create wealth. There's a lot of other things that you can get down this rabbit hole, but that's the proven way. When you were starting off in your journey and you were poor, what was your starting point? What do you feel like? Mentally, what did you do? And then what did you do in terms of an actual step to move forward? Sure. So first thing was I had no financial literacy when I started. And so I thought, where can I get financial literacy from? I'm not going to get it from universities and I'm not going to get it from my family because they're not financially literate themselves. So I said, what's the best thing I can do? Work for a bank. So I worked as a bank in the customer service. I was a teller, cash teller. I was counting cash behind the counters. And then what I thought, I'm not going to learn anything here. I need to be out there talking to the people that are coming in and making these substantial deposits. And I need to somehow start talking to them. So I said to my manager, can I become a customer service person? And the whole time, I was the one supposed to be giving the advice. 
I spend my entire time asking questions to see how they create wealth. Where did the money come from? What did they do? So one of the things I realized was that practically the people who had self-made, first-generation people who were multimillionaires, the first thing I realized about them was that they had owned real estate, but they started a long time ago. So immediately I knew that leverage was something that I needed to use. They were not scared of using debt. And so I said, you know what? I need to get myself in a position where I can borrow the money, but I'm going to start with real estate. So the more time you have, the more attractive real estate is. So one of the things I realized was real estate is perfect for wealth accumulation. And the stock market is perfect for wealth management. But for wealth management, you've got to create wealth first. Now, it's not just the buying of the investment that makes you successful, because if you actually look at the research, one study shows that the average amount of time that people hold real estate is five years, and the amount of time that people hold stocks is about 3.2 years. So the issue is not in the buying. Anyone can buy real estate and stocks. That's not the issue. The money is actually made in the waiting. So good selection and then in the waiting, right? So 10% of money is made in the buying, 10% is made in the selling, 80% is made in the waiting. That's where people fail. And why do people fail there? You don't need superior intellect to wait. What you need is the right psychology. And if you don't have the right psychology, you're going to sell prematurely because you're going to get impatient and you're going to get seduced by market noise and you're going to get seduced by all the crypto that my friend's making this much money that I just stick to my plan. I have seen firsthand thousands of people how they become wealthy by working in private banks. I know how they become wealthy. I'm not deviating from that plan. The plan was set many years ago. I decided what my net worth is going to be. And I have two net worth targets. One is my ideal net worth, which is pretty high. And one is the minimum net worth that I need to get to just to make sure that I'm completely financially secure. Now, I've already surpassed the minimum a long time ago. Now, I'm working for the stretch target. And why shouldn't I? I'm glad I did because six months ago, we were doing projections and the inflation rate was 2.5%. Now it's sitting at 8%. So that same yeah. million dollars is not going to buy you as much. So I'm glad that I set a stretch target because you never know when the governments are going to start to mismanage money and you can't rely on them. So you know that inflation is something that happens all the time and it's better to have more and not need it than to have less and to need it. Right? So that's not about greed to me. That's about thinking forward. That's about contingency planning. And that's about securing my family's future, no matter what happens. I've got a 10-year-old daughter. And one of the things I'm trying to teach her is, sweetheart, you must work hard, but don't work hard to survive. Work hard to build. There's a big difference. And people are working very hard just to survive, which means that they're running on the treadmill on, and they're in the same spot. Whereas I want to run, and I want to get ahead every year. So my net worth must increase by 10 to 15% on an annual basis. And I make no apologies for it. That doesn't make me greedy. It's not like there's a shortage of money out there. They're pumping trillions of dollars of new money in the world economy. It's not like there's a shortage there. So why are we acting there's a shortage, right? And there's no point attacking wealthy people. Yes, the system is rigged to some extent. Yes, there is a lot of vested interest. There's a lot of control. I get that. I'm not naive. However, is there anything I can do to get my hands on some of that so I don't have to be one of the poor people, because there's a saying, one of the best things you can do for the poor is not to be one of them. Love it. We know that you got another meeting that you had you got to head into, but can you give us a little bit of information about your books? And I know our listeners would love to see some of your books, buy them. And then, like I said, you're one of my favorite guys to listen to online. I love your talks. If you can't tell, like he's a phenomenal speaker, but you have some really engaging stuff. So where can people find out more about that? Thanks, Lee. My recent book is called Indoctrinated. Indoctrinated basically means brainwashed. 
And if you actually look at the cover, what you have is a conveyor belt and you have these graduates. And the, basically the subtitle is how the conventional education system perpetuates conformity, mediocrity and indistinguishability. Effectively, I make a case for the fact that our education system is not teaching us the mindset and the skill set that is required for accomplishments and fulfillment. And I'm questioning why that is. And I'm questioning why is it they're teaching us only technical capability, but they're not teaching us self-discovery, self-mastery, and they're not teaching us leadership and influence, money management, investing, persuasion, marketing, sales, business building systems risk management, decision-making, productivity, performance, pretty much every skill that makes you highly accomplished and fulfilled in life has been conveniently taken out of the educational curriculums. Why are they so prone to indoctrination? That's my question, right? I don't have the answers, but we've got to start with the questions here. And so this book will take a person from unconscious incompetence around their own indoctrination to conscious incompetence, where they go, you know what? I'm now starting to realize my own blind spots. I have a solution in there, which I have recommended. I don't think it's going to be ever embraced and adopted by educational institutions. And that's why perhaps we're seeing an emergence of coaches, consultants, trainers, speakers, and authors, because that what you're seeing is this is the response to a broken education system and a broken work system. We're trying to correct that somehow by our own independent research and analysis. Unfortunately, psychology is so complex and much of what we've learned about the human brain has only come out in the last 10 years. So we are very ignorant about how things work, even at this point. But I think it starts by asking ourselves the question and putting the spotlight on the problem first. So we can then go, okay, hang on, just because I have a few degrees and I'm extremely accomplished in corporate or government doesn't mean that I necessarily have the wisdom to know how to make the right decisions. I love the book cover. Listeners, it's basically a bunch of graduates on a conveyor belt just getting rolled along. I'm gonna buy You're it. Gonna make it's on Amazon. Counselor or someone that's going to make uh, get people going back into <laughs> a bunch of student debt. But I really love your ideology. And by the way, Lee, I'm not undermining the importance of formal education. I'm just simply saying it's not adequate. It is important, but it's not sufficient. And that's the issue. When we make the assumption that, oh, well, I'm, I'm now degree qualified, that's, I know everything that I need to know, that's where the problem is. And I can tell you, decision-making frameworks, risk management frameworks, productivity frameworks, performance frameworks, emotional regulation frameworks, these are incredibly important to living an accomplished and fulfilling life. We don't have the tools to know how to manage ourselves, how to manage our money, how to manage situations, how to manage risk. So how can we succeed just because we have technical capability? All those things are incredibly important in life. A success is an individual's ability to get what they want out of life. That's really what it is. That means you need to know what you want, and most people don't. And secondly, you need to know how to make the types of decisions so you can get what you want in all areas. I'm not talking about money. Like I'm talking about health, personal presentation, influence, impact, contribution, meaningful relationships, peace of mind, vitality, and financial resources. Now, I can't get all of that if I'm not a good decision maker. But how do I make decisions? Well, my thought process has to be very clear. So for me, it's a case of um, we have to educate people on these things that are incredibly important. Otherwise, what we're seeing is even though it appears that technology is improving, and it is, technology is it's in, in improving at such an exponential rate. But what are we seeing with the human mind? The incidence of depression, anxiety, mental illness is also on the rise. Meaning we don't know how to absorb this information. We don't know how to compute and analyze this information. And we don't know how to use it to our advantage. 
Okay, so just the accessibility of information is not going to fix the problem. It's just actually exacerbating the problem. What we need is the ability to be able to filter out this information and see what's going on with clarity. And that's all of my books are designed to bring clarity in different areas, whether it's the area of money or psychology. Essentially, I'm just a guy who sees the patterns in complex things, and I try and describe them to the best of my ability. Amazing, man. Thank you so much, Ron. We loved having you. And can you drop your website again for, uh, for the listeners? It's just ronmahutra.com. But guys, I guess if somebody wants to know more, just check me out. I'm active on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube are the platforms I'm most active in. And the reason I have to do that is because I want the message getting out there. So please connect. Send me a question. If there is something that triggered you about this conversation, please let me know what that is and why that is. And I'll explain to you why that may have triggered you. We probably triggered a lot of people on this episode. This was fantastic. It's needed. It's necessary. (laughs) It was absolutely necessary. My intent is pure. And I can tell you, I only want that people have the ability to see what's going on so they can be financially empowered. Love it. All right, ladies and gents. Check out Ron Mahatra. 140,000-ish followers on it at this point. So definitely, you got some people that want to listen to you, Ron. So you got two fans right here. And make sure you guys all check them out. You've been listening to the Free Retiree Show. So long for now. Securities offered through Securities American Incorporated, member of FINRA, www.finra.org, SIPC, www.sipc.org, a separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed for the California Department of Insurance, license 0H18660. Lee Michael Murphy is an investment advisor representative with Securities American Advisors, a registered investment advisor. The Free Retiree, Securities American Advisors, and Securities American Incorporated are separate entities. Career Advisor Sergio Patterson, Attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Securities American Advisors or Securities American Incorporated. Securities American Advisors, Securities American Incorporated, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. The content heard in this podcast is not intended to be tax, investment, or legal advice and is intended as general guidance only. You should contact your own tax advisor, financial advisor, or attorney to answer questions about your specific situation or needs before acting upon this information. Third-party sourced information or comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of Facebook, Inc., The opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.